The Guardian. The day begins to break, and soon there is the hum and noise of life. Those who have spent the night on doorsteps and cold stones crawl off to beg. Those who have slept in beds come forth to their occupation too, and business is astir. Charles Dickens saw the city of London change from a place where people lived, worked, and shopped to an area devoted solely to business. As the well-to-do moved away from the square mile, he witnessed the construction of an empire of trade, sculpted of grand stones and marble, where once had been bricks and mortar. I'm John Henley, and in this podcast walk, we'll take you round the key sites of the city of London as they appeared to Dickens. The tour is designed to be taken on location as a guided walk, and it should work in real time. There's a map you can download to ensure you don't get out of sync. If you're listening at home, the podcast should work as a documentary in its own right. But if you are walking with us, make your way now to St Mary at Hill, a short walk from Monument Tube Station. Turn right down St Mary at Hill and dive right between numbers 5 and 7 into a small nameless alleyway. There's a sign above the door saying church entrance and I'll see you there. So if you've made it to that little alleyway you'll be standing now in a completely unexpected disused churchyard. I'm here with Veronica Horwell, the Guardian journalist, who's going to be our guide. So, I mean, Veronica, what is this place? It is a disused churchyard. It's even more than that. It's a disused graveyard. The whole of the City of London was rebuilt after the fire with almost all its original medieval, in effect, village churches in just the places they'd been because right beside them were already centuries of dead and those centuries of dead went on piling up. Imagine that in a city unbelievably populous, little stacked heaps of centuries of dead. We can see, I mean, there are gravestones here from 1772, 1704, and surrounded, I suppose, by... What, what are these sort of Victorian these office buildings? These are late Victorian office buildings. One or two of them may just have overlapped with Dickens, but their predecessors also overlap with Dickens. What happened was that in the 1830s, it was decided to reform the burying practices as well as everything else. And these were closed, but the interments that had always been here remained. The air was foul. The dust, as Dickens said, was the dust of my ancestors. Mm. This was becoming a city of the dead and a city of people who came in to work. Mm. It was really changing as he was living through it. When he first came to London as a very small boy on a visit, the balance of city and suburb still just favored the city. By the time he died, the numbers living in the city had dropped by about 80%. Living quarters were replaced by office blocks and warehouses. When he does a little tour of some of his favorite moldering graveyards of the city, serving churches with a congregation of three and three quarters on a good Sunday, he notices that they are completely surrounded by the high warehouses of the new world. Mm. 
Okay, so a really a period of great change. We'll leave then now the graveyard. We'll go back out through the alleyway, turn right down the hill, almost to the bottom, and there on your right-hand side you'll find the company of watermen and lightermen. Such strange churchyards hide in the city of London. Churchyards sometimes so entirely detached from churches, always so pressed upon by houses, so small, so rank, so silent, so forgotten, except by the few people who ever look down into them from their smoky windows. As I stand, peeping in through the iron gates and rails, I can peel the rusty metal off, like bark from an old tree. The illegible tombstones are all lopsided. The grave mounds lost their shape in the rains of a hundred years ago. The Lombardy poplar, or plane tree, that was once a dry salter's daughter and several common councilmen, has withered like those worthies, and its departed leaves are dust beneath it. Contagion of slow ruin overhangs the place. Sometimes there is a rusty pump somewhere near, and as I look in at the rails and meditate, I hear it working under an unknown hand with a creaking protest, as though the departed in the churchyard urged, let us lie here in peace, don't suck us up and drink us. So here we are then outside the company of watermen and lightermen, two extraordinary buildings, one stone with columns and, and beautiful carvings on the facade, and the other one with what looks like completely spectacular sort of stucco mouldings inside a brick building. Veronica, can you just locate this for us through Dickens's eyes? Well, this belongs to Dickens's river. Dickens was besotted with the Thames. It runs right the way through his novels, not just as a place, but as a mood and as a way of denoting things. And as with the city, he'd seen the use and the feeling for the Thames change within his own lifetime. Remember, he's the son of a man who worked in the Naval Pay Office. He's been on the edge of the water all his life. When he first came to London, as quite a small boy on a visit. The steamship had barely been introduced. The whole of the war and commerce of this nation was conducted on sailing ships, mm. and a great many of the commercial sailing ships were making for the Pool of London, the big tidal area to the east of Old London Bridge, which acted as a kind of dam. They couldn't be directly unloaded on either side of the river, although there were wharves and quays, because they were too big and too bulky. So what you needed were light cargo boats, like barges, but very, very light ones, called lighters. And you took off your sacks and sacks of goods. Off the bigger boats. Off the bigger into boats. Into the smaller ones. Put them into boats. the lighters, and your lighter men, who were fabulously skilled, professional sailors brought them in to the much smaller wharves and quays that could deal with the goods because remember once you landed them the biggest thing you could load them onto was a cart and cart jams in the city of London big problem so pretty often they were loaded onto somebody's back 
<laughs> the entire delivery system of London, everything that we would now think of as a container port, came through the hands, and I mean the hands, and the backs and the muscles of the guys who got them off the big ships, onto the lighters, to the shore, and then delivered them over to the transport such as it was within the city. Extraordinary. I mean, that's just a profession that's completely disappeared. We're going to go down then now to the foot of St. Mary at Hill, turn right, take the first turning on your right, which is Monument Street, and then turn immediately right again up Lovett Lane. Go to the top of Lovett Lane and pause there just for a second. Arthur Clennam went down, at a long angle, almost to the water's edge. Through some of the crooked and descending streets which lie, and lay more crookedly and closely then, between the river and Cheapside, passing now the mouldy hall of some obsolete worshipful company, now the illuminated windows of a congregationless church that seemed to be waiting for some adventurous Belzoni to dig it out and discover its history passing silent warehouses and wharves, and here and there a narrow alley leading to the river, where a wretched little bill, found drowned, was weeping on the wet wall. He came at last to the house he sought. An old brick house, so dingy as to be all but black, standing by itself within a gateway. Many years ago, it had had in its mind to slide down sideways. It had been propped up, however, and was leaning on some half-dozen gigantic crutches, which gymnasium for the neighbouring cats, weather-stained, smoke-blackened, and overgrown with weeds, appeared in these latter days to be no very sure reliance. "'Nothing changed,' said the traveller, stopping to look round. "'Dark and miserable as ever, a light in my mother's window, which seems never to have been extinguished since I came home twice a year from school.' and dragged my box over this pavement. Well, well, well. He went up to the door, which had a projecting canopy and carved work of festooned jack towels and children's heads with water on the brain, designed after a once popular monumental pattern, and knocked. A shuffling step was soon heard on the stone floor of the hall, and the door was opened by an old man, bent and dried, but with keen eyes. He had a candle in his hand, and he held it up for a moment to assist his keen eyes. Ah, Mr. Arthur, he said, without any emotion. You'll come at last. Step in. So here we are at the top of Lovett Lane, butting onto East Cheap. Veronica, why have we stopped here? Well, look over the door of the HSBC Bank and you will see an amazing high Victorian frieze of mercantile camels. And that, to a certain extent, is because the rebuilding along here in the later 19th century commemorated the fact that Eastcheap was the headquarters, the magnificent headquarters, of the East India Company, which was pretty well the foundation of the British mercantile empire, which somehow as they say, in a fit of absence of mind, solidified into the thing that we don't like, the empire. Well, we'll move on then. At the end of the road, turn left onto East Cheap and then take the first right, which is Philpot Lane. Take care crossing the road. At the end of that, cross over the road again into Lime Street and bear left 
into Lime Street Passage. You'll see straight away where you are, it's Leadenhall Market. They stood in the city streets on Christmas morning. The poulterer's shops were still half open and the fruiterers were radiant in their glory. There were great round pot-bellied baskets of chestnuts shaped like the waistcoats of jolly old gentlemen lolling at the doors and tumbling out into the street in their apoplectic opulence. There were ruddy, brown-faced, broad-girthed Spanish onions, shining in the fatness of their growth like Spanish friars, and winking from their shelves in wanton slyness at the girls as they went by, and glanced demurely at the hung-up mistletoe. There were pears and apples, clustered high in blooming pyramids. There were bunches of grapes, made in the shopkeeper's benevolence to dangle from conspicuous hooks that people's mouths might water gratis as they passed. There were piles of filberts, mossy and brown, recalling in their fragrance ancient walks among the woods, and pleasant shufflings ankle-deep through withered leaves. There were Norfolk biffins, squat and swarthy, setting off the yellow of the oranges and lemons, and, in the great compactness of their juicy persons, urgently entreating and beseeching to be carried home in paper bags and eaten after dinner. The very gold and silver fish set forth among these choice fruits in a bowl, though members of a dull and stagnant-blooded race appeared to know that there was something going on, and, to a fish, went gasping round and round their little world in slow and passionless excitement. The grocers, oh, the grocers, nearly closed, with perhaps two shutters down, or one, but through those gaps, such glimpses. It was not alone that the scales descending on the counter made a merry sound, or that the twine and roller parted company so briskly, or that the canisters were rattled up and down like juggling tricks, or even that the blended scents of tea and coffee were so grateful to the nose, or even that the raisins were so plentiful and rare, the almonds so extremely white, the sticks of cinnamon so long and straight, the other spices so delicious, the candied fruits so caked and spotted with molten sugar as to make the coldest lookers-on feel faint and subsequently bilious. Nor was it that the figs were moist and pulpy, or that the French plums blushed in modest tartness from their highly decorated boxes, or that everything was good to eat and in its Christmas dress. But the customers were all so hurried and so eager in the hopeful promise of the day that they tumbled up against each other at the door, crashing their wicker baskets wildly, and left their purchases upon the counter, and came running back to fetch them, and committed hundreds of the like mistakes in the best humour possible, while the grocer and his people were so frank and fresh that the polished hearts with which they fastened their aprons behind might have been their own, worn outside for general inspection and for Christmas doors to peck at if they chose. So, hopefully you've made your way now into the heart of Leadenhall Market. This place, in fact, dates back to the 14th century, and the market specialised in meat and game and poultry. We're standing at what was the very centre of Roman London. Veronica, tell us about its significance to Dickens, then. Well, Dickens never actually starved, but he did go pretty hungry in the early period of his life. And there is never a Dickens book in which, as George Orwell once pointed out, 
he leaves out the entire menu of what's available to eat. <laughs> if there is one place in London, even more than Covent Garden Market, which only specialised in fruit and flowers and mm. vegetables, this place represented absolute abundance to Dickens. This was the place that supplied all the eating houses of the city, all the wealthy livery companies, the mansion house, with the very best of produce. You mentioned game, for example. Mm -hmm. Game was not publicly sold before the 1830s because it was illegal. Oh. But there was a change of law at that period. And then teal and widgeon and quail and pheasant were freely available for sale instead of directly from the estates concerned. Mm. The place also dealt in live game, ducks, geese, a certain amount of green stuff. It sold them directly to the cooks. It sold them to the suppliers, the fishmongers and the poulterers. And it also sold the bits left over to the costermongers. A hundred of them worked out of Leadenhall Market with their barrows or with their stalls selling pennyworths of food around the city, both your Ocado delivery service <laughs> and your local sandwich bar. <laughs> and I say, I mean, Dickens himself during his lifetime, I, I suppose, knew both sides of the sort of the food divide, didn't he? I mean, he started off in quite poor conditions and ended up, I mean, he would have uh, banqueted, you know, at, at the tables of the rich and famous famous in London at the peak of his career, would he not? His memories of being short on food included stupidly spending a penny of his tiny weekly income from the blacking factory mm. on stale pastries sold the next day outside cookshops. Oh. Obviously he couldn't resist the sugar. <laughs> and by the time he was in his 40s, he was a regular guest over the turtle soup at the Guildhall. Now it's a little bit complicated leaving the market by the right passage, so what we'll try and do is this. If you retrace your steps a little way back towards Lime Street Passage, you should see in front of you a classic red London post box. Turn right next door to that along a little passageway only a few yards then you'll turn right and left again you'll now be in Ship Tavern Passage then we're going to exit the market onto Gracechurch Street turn left and right under an archway called Bell Inn Yard walk into that courtyard and head straight for the George and Vulture pub which is tucked away in the right hand corner Mr. Pickwick resolved on immediately returning to London with the view of becoming acquainted with the proceedings which had been taken against him, in the meantime by Messrs. Dodson and Fogg. Acting upon this resolution, with all the energy and decision of his character, he mounted to the back seat of the first coach which left Ipswich and, accompanied by his three friends and Mr. Samuel Weller, arrived in the metropolis in perfect health and safety the same evening. Here, the friends for a short time separated, Messrs Tupman, Winkle and Snodgrass, repaired to their several homes to make such preparations as might be requisite for their forthcoming visit to Dingley Dell, and Mr Pickwick and Sam took up their present abode in very good, old-fashioned and comfortable quarters, to wit, the George and Vulture Tavern and Hotel, George Yard, Lombard Street. 
Mr. Pickwick had dined, finished his second pint of particular port, pulled his silk handkerchief over his head, put his feet on the fender, and thrown himself back in an easy chair, when the entrance of Mr. Weller with his carpet bag aroused him from his tranquil meditation. Sam, said Mr. Pickwick. Sir, said Mr. Weller. I have just been thinking, Sam, said Mr. Pickwick, that having left a good many things at Mrs. Bardell's in Goswell Street, I ought to arrange for taking them away before I leave town again. Very good, sir, replied Mr. Weller. I could send them to Mr. Tupman's for the present, Sam, continued Mr. Pickwick. But before we take them away, it is necessary that they should be looked up and put together. I wish you would step up to Goswell Street, Sam, and arrange about it. At once, sir? inquired Mr. Weller. At once, replied Mr. Pickwick. Mr. Pickwick drew the silk handkerchief once more over his head and composed himself for a nap. Mr. Weller promptly walked forth to execute his commission. Here we are then outside the George and Vulture. Hope you found it. It's not immediately obvious. And this is the pub then that was so beloved of Mr. Pickwick. Spectacular doorway, all polished wood and frosted glass and, and brass. And Veronica, there's been a pub here on this site since the 1200s. And then it became a hotel and eating rooms. Indeed, it remains eating rooms in a very old-fashioned manner. And it's part of what was, before the late 18th and early 19th century, an ordinary small sub-city of London village. But after that became something quite different, because one of the main changes of the late 18th and early 19th century emptying out of the city of London was that it was no longer a village in which you were born and died. It was a city of men. You have to remember that in the new business institutions that took over the premises and then rebuilt them, not as houses, but as places of business, warehouses, offices, there were no women employees. Mm. Even the secretaries, the amanuensis, were male. There was no clerical backup from women. I have to say, it doesn't look very different today, does it? I mean, it really feels all these little alleyways and courtyards and still, you know, mainly male city workers having very good lunches. There were a few remaining women residing who were pretty much left over from the 18th century or were people who were put perhaps as caretakers or as tenants, into old abandoned premises. There were a few pretty barmaids. The Georgian Vulture has one in Pickwick. Well, by all means, stop for a drink at the Georgian Vulture. If you do, though, remember to pause the podcast. Now, we're going to walk a very short distance indeed. Outside the front door of the Georgian Vulture, you are in St Michael's Alley. Take a few steps into a small courtyard that you'll see at the end of that, and you're wanting to turn immediately left into Castle Court. It just runs the other side of the pub, in fact. Um, again, just a few yards down that, and then turn right through a small alley marked Simpsons. Mr Dombey's offices were in a court where perambulating merchants of both sexes offered for sale at any time between the hours of ten and five slippers, pocketbooks, sponges, dog collars, and Windsor soap. And sometimes a pointer or an oil painting. The ticket porter 
if he were not absent on a job, always ran officiously before to open Mr. Dombey's office door as wide as possible and hold it open with his hat off while he entered. So you should find yourself now then in a small, quite dark courtyard just outside Simpson's restaurant. Veronica, this is, must very much be the kind of courtyard that Dickens would have recognised from his youth. What, what was he doing then around these parts? He began work in a lawyer's office just outside the city. And then he moved to work in a reporting job in a place we're going to come to later in this journey. And he spent an enormous amount of time, as he always did, legging it about everywhere. And he was completely fascinated by London because he wasn't a native Londoner. Mm. And he was watching. He noticed the city changing very, very rapidly. One of the things that happened was that buildings like this, which you will observe is actually 18th century hardly tarted up at all at mm. any time, which previously would have been dwelling houses, as well as things like taverns, were being altered to be used as offices. Mm. The people were moving out and the clerks were moving in. And the clerks, of course, have to be fed and watered, hence this is a famous place that's been feeding and watering them for a couple of hundred years. Not watered, perhaps. <laughs> I think we know absolutely what you mean. All right, well, let's head down the alley now then onto Cornhill. Turn left, keep going until you reach the big intersection and stop in front of the Royal Exchange on your right. As we walk, let's listen to Dickens writing in The Uncommercial Traveller. Pausing of a quiet Sunday, the alleys behind the closed banks of mighty Lombard Street. It gives one as good as a rich feeling to think of the broad counters with a rim along the edge, made for telling money out on. The scales for weighing precious metals, the ponderous ledgers, and above all, the bright copper shovels for shoveling gold. When I draw money, it never seems so much money as when it is shoveled at me out of a bright copper shovel. I like to say, in gold, and to see seven pounds musically pouring out of the shovel, like seventy. The bank appearing to remark to me, I italicize, appearing. If you want more of this yellow earth, we keep it in barrows at your service. To think of the banker's clerk with his deft finger turning the crisp edges of the hundred pound notes he has taken in a fat roll out of a drawer is again to hear the rustling of that delicious south cash wind. How will you have it? I once heard this usual question asked at a bank counter of an elderly female, habited in mourning and steeped in simplicity, who answered, open-eyed, crook-fingered, laughing with expectation, anyhow. Calling these things to mind as I stroll among the banks, I wonder whether the other solitary man I pass has designs upon the banks. For the interest and mystery of the matter, I almost hope he may have, and that his confederate may be at this moment taking impressions of the keys of the iron closets in wax, and that a delightful robbery may be in course of transaction. About College Hill, Mark Lane, and so on towards the tower, and Dockwood, the deserted wine merchant sellers are fine subjects for consideration, but the deserted money sellers of the bankers, and their plate sellers, and their jewel sellers, what subterranean regions of the wonderful lamp are these? 
and again, possibly some shoeless boy in rags, passing through this street yesterday, for whom it is reserved to be a banker in the fullness of time, and to be surpassing rich. Such reverses have been since the days of Whittington, and were long before. I want to know whether the boy has any foreglittering of that glittering fortune now, when he treads these stones, hungry. So hopefully now you've made it to the front of the Royal Exchange, uh, all, all steps and, and Corinthian columns and a, a rather shishi restaurant inside. It's a real temple of commerce, isn't it? At the very heart of the city of London, a centre of trade and commerce for, for more than 400 years. Veronica, why have you brought us here specifically? Well, we're right opposite the Bank of England. We're a couple of hundred yards from the no longer extant South Sea House. By the way, the South Sea Company managed part of the national debt into the 1850s. And Dickens had a very ambivalent attitude towards money. He was an earner. He expected all his life, from his seven shillings a week in the blacking factory through his ten and sixpence a week as an office clerk in a legal firm, through to his death when he left an estate worth £90,000 in 1870. He expected that all his income he would directly have to make himself. But he knew that this place represented the abstract of wealth. His great quarrel was not with enormous wealth per se. His great quarrel was with debt which had ruined his father's life and nearly ruined his own. What Dickens hated were usurers, were those who charged massive interest on debt. And so, I mean, so Dickens, I mean, he had a genuine intellectual understanding of how all this worked. And he was also, I, I suppose, very well aware of the, of the sort of the frailty and the fragility of the whole thing. I mean, we're not far here, are we, from South Sea House? He'd run through the courts of that when he was a boy. Uh, the South Sea bubble had exploded by then over a century before, leaving the house and the management of the debt behind. But he also knew and it's mentioned over and over again in his novels, how speculative bubbles, the big one of his time was the railway building bubble of the 1840s, made possible when the government of Britain in the 1820s repealed the protective laws brought in after the South Sea bubble, which prevented companies from misbehaving quite so flagrantly. Well, now we're going to walk just a very short distance across the road to the front of the Mansion House. It's that grand Palladian building with Corinthian columns opposite the Royal Exchange, just slightly to the left. Strolling about the city as a lost child, I thought of the British merchant and the Lord Mayor and was full of reverence. Strolling about it now, I laugh at the sacred liveries of state and get indignant with the corporation as one of the strongest practical jokes of the present day. What did I know then about the multitude who are always being disappointed in the city? Who are always expecting to meet a party there and to receive money there and whose expectations are never fulfilled? What did I know then about that wonderful person, the friend in the city, 
who is to do so many things for so many people, who is to get this one into a post at home and that one into a post abroad. Had I ever learned to dread him as a shark, disregard him as a humbug and know him for a myth? Not I. Had I the least idea what was meant by such terms as jobbery, rigging the markets, cooking accounts, getting up a dividend, making things pleasant and the like. Not the slightest. There was a dinner preparing at the mansion house, and when I peeped in at a grated kitchen window and saw the men cooks at work in their white caps, my heart began to beat with hope that the Lord Mayor or the Lady Mayoress or one of the young princesses, their daughters, would look out of an upper apartment and direct me to be taken in. But nothing of the kind occurred. That was Dickens writing in Gone Astray, Household Words. And we followed him here to the mansion house, built to give the Lord Mayor a formal residence in the city. Veronica, what was Charles Dickens' attitude towards the institutions here? Half enchanted, half appalled, but appalled to amusement. Dickens had a version of London and of its wealth and its grandeur in his head from the time he was brought to London when he was probably about seven or eight years old, actually in order to dispel a fantasy he had about all the beggars and cripples of the city <laughs> being miraculously healed, whole and wealthy and in smart garments going to church on a Sunday. And he was taken to the church and shown it wasn't so. He made his own way in the world. And so he imagines that how you rise in this world has to do with your own merit. Consequently, if he, like Dick Whittington, is wandering down by the mansion house, why then, of course, the mayor's wife will open the window and summon him in to save the princess. <laughs> He's got this idea that it's a narrative from the storybooks. He doesn't really understand about power and connection. And when he's older, in his 20s, and he does understand about these things, they turn up all the time in his novels, he's both angry and he's laughing himself sick. OK, we need to move on towards our next stop, I think. Head down Mansion House Place, which is the passageway on the left-hand side of the Mansion House. Follow it round to the left and you'll arrive at St Swithin's Lane. Turn right there into St Swithin's Lane and then left onto Cannon Street and cross the road. Head down Lawrence Pountney Lane, not Lawrence Pountney Hill at this point, Lawrence Pountney Lane, about halfway down on your right, and you'll see a little path between two gardens. Take that path and turn right into Lawrence Pountney Hill at that point. Pause outside the two merchant houses on your left. The coal heavers would tell old legends of what the Thames was in ancient times. When the patent shot manufactory wasn't built, and Waterloo Bridge had never been thought of. And then they would shake their heads with portentous looks to the deep edification of the rising generation of heavers who crowded round them and wondered where all this would end. Whereat the tailor would take his pipe solemnly from his mouth and say how that he hoped it might end well, but he very much doubted whether it would or not and couldn't rightly tell what to make of it a mysterious expression of opinion 
delivered with a semi-prophetic air, which never failed to elicit the fullest concurrence of the assembled company. And so they would go on drinking and wondering till ten o'clock came, and with it the tailor's wife to fetch him home, when the little party broke up, to meet again in the same room and say and do precisely the same things on the following evening at the same hour. About this time, the barges that came up the river began to bring vague rumours of somebody in the city having been heard to say that the Lord Mayor had threatened, in so many words, to pull down the old London Bridge and build up a new one. At first, these rumours were disregarded as idle tales wholly destitute of foundation, for nobody doubted that if the Lord Mayor contemplated any such dark design, he would just be clapped up in the tower for a week or two, and then killed off for high treason. By degrees, however, the reports grew stronger and more frequent, and at last a barge, laden with numerous chaldrons of the best Wall's End coal, brought up the positive intelligence that several of the arches of the old bridge were stopped and that preparations were actually in progress for constructing the new one. What an excitement was visible in the old taproom on that memorable night. Each man looked into his neighbour's face, pale with alarm and astonishment, and read therein an echo of the sentiments which filled his own breast. The oldest heaver present proved to demonstration that the moment the pyres were removed, all the water in the Thames would run clean off and leave a dry gully in its place. What was to become of the coal barges, of the trade of Scotland Yard, of the very existence of its population? The tailor shook his head more sagely than usual, and grimly pointing to a knife on the table, bid them wait and see what happened. He said nothing, not he. But if the Lord Mayor didn't fall a victim to popular indignation, why, he would be rather astonished. That was all. They did wait. Barge after barge arrived, and still no tidings of the assassination of the Lord Mayor. The first stone was laid. It was done by a duke, the king's brother. Years passed away, and the bridge was opened by the king himself. In course of time, the pyres were removed and when the heavers got up next morning in the confident expectation of being able to step over to Peddler's Acre without wetting the soles of their shoes, they found to their unspeakable astonishment that the water was just where it used to be. When Perch, the messenger, whose place was on a little bracket, like a timepiece, saw Mr Dombey come in, or rather when he felt that he was coming, for he had usually an instinctive sense of his approach, he hurried into Mr. Dombey's room, stirred the fire, carried fresh coals from the bowels of the coal box, hung the newspaper to air upon the fender, put the chair ready and the screen in its place, and was round upon his heel on the instant of Mr. Dombey's entrance to take his greatcoat and hat and hang them up. Then Perch took the newspaper and gave it a turn or two in his hands before the fire and laid it deferentially at Mr. Dombey's elbow. And so little objection had Perch to being deferential in the last degree, that if he might have laid himself at Mr. Dombey's feet, or might have called him by some such title as used to be bestowed upon the Caliph Harun al-Rashid, he would have been all the better pleased. 
As this honour would have been an innovation and an experiment, Perch was fain to content himself by expressing as well as he could in his manner, You are the light of my eyes. You are the breath of my soul. You are the commander of the faithful Perch. With this imperfect happiness to cheer him, he would shut the door softly, walk away on tiptoe, and leave his great chief to be stared at. Shaped window in the leads, ugly chimney pots and backs of houses, and especially by the bold window of a hair-cutting saloon on a first floor, where a waxen effigy, bold as a Mussulman in the morning, and covered, after eleven o'clock in the day, with luxuriant hair and whiskers in the latest Christian fashion, showed him the wrong side of its head forever. So here we are then outside two spectacularly beautiful merchants' houses at numbers one and two Lawrence Pountney Hill. Amazing mouldings and stucco work outside the doors. Does this give us a sense of the scale of the buildings in the city that, that Dickens saw disappearing when commerce really started to take over, Veronica? By the time that Dickens was wandering around the city of London in the 1830s, buildings like this were being used as offices, beginning to fall apart. There weren't enormous families living in them anymore. Remember, this was a coal-fueled city until the 1950s. Coal coming in by that river was being burned everywhere in those amazing tall chimneys you can see right above you. I must say the building looks rather more like a gigantic bookcase than a building. <laughs> and I, this is, I suppose the change then that he was seeing was the goods trade was slowly being moved out and it was we were now getting into the business basically of, of bringing people into the city in huge numbers. Yeah. There were still goods stored in and around the city of London but as the industrial revolution's wheels went faster and faster and faster and faster so the organisations that were needed to deal and move those goods around grew bigger and bigger and bigger. With that change came a city where you had to get enormous quantities of workers in at the beginning of the day and send them back to where they were now living, anything from one to seven miles away, by foot, by the new omnibuses which came in in the late 1820s. The influx that we now think of was beginning as far back as that and was accelerated at phenomenal pace once the railways came as close as they could to the city of London. Right, well now we're going to hear about the coming of the railways in Dickens's own words as we walk past Cannon Street Station. Walk to the top of Lawrence Pountney Hill now then, uh, rejoining Cannon Street, and turn left. Immediately after the train station, turn left down Dowgate Hill and pause at the junction with Cloak Lane. Where the old rotten houses once had stood, palaces now reared their heads, and granite columns of gigantic girth opened a vista to the railway world beyond. The miserable waste ground, where the refuse matter had been heaped of yore, was swallowed up and gone, and in its frowsy stead 
were tiers of warehouses, crammed with rich goods and costly merchandise. The old by-streets now swarmed with passengers and vehicles of every kind the new streets that had stopped disheartened in the mud and wagon ruts, formed towns within themselves, originating wholesome comforts and conveniences belonging to themselves, and never tried nor thought of until they sprung into existence. Bridges that had led to nothing led to villas, gardens, churches, healthy public walks. The carcasses of houses and beginnings of new thoroughfares had started off upon the line at steam's own speed and shot away in a monster train. As to the neighbourhood, which had hesitated to acknowledge the railroad in its straggling days, that had grown wise and penitent, as any Christian might in such a case, and now boasted of its powerful and prosperous relation. There were railway patterns in its draper's shops, and railway journals in the windows of its newsmen. There were railway hotels, office houses, lodging houses, boarding houses, railway plans, maps, views, wrappers, bottles, sandwich boxes and timetables, railway hackney coach and cab stands, railway omnibuses, railway streets and buildings, railway hangers-on and parasites, and flatterers out of all calculation. There was even railway time observed in clocks, as if the sun itself had given in. To and from the heart of this great change, all day and night, throbbing currents rushed and returned incessantly like its life's blood. Crowds of people and mountains of goods, departing and arriving scores upon scores of times in every four and twenty hours, produced a fermentation in the place that was always in action. The very houses seemed disposed to pack up and take trips, Night and day the conquering engines rumbled at their distant work, or advancing smoothly to their journey's end, and gliding like tame dragons into the allotted corners, grooved out to the inch for their reception, stood bubbling and trembling there, making the walls quake, as if they were dilating with the secret knowledge of great powers yet unsuspected in them, and strong purposes not yet achieved. So hopefully now then we've reached the junction of Cloak Lane and Dowgate Hill just around the corner from Cannon Street Station. Veronica, tell us a, a little bit about this area then. This is one of the access points where the railway came into London. Mostly the railways stayed on the very edges of London because of the sheer difficulty of pushing railway building through old building. but. There were a number of stations which you came to the eastern edges of the city or, as with this one, used the river to bring a bridge in from the south hmm. and thereby put themselves right in the city of London itself. Of course, they had to knock down innumerable merchants' houses like those glories we've just seen to do yes, it. Yes, yeah. And this is a very, very ancient part of the city, isn't it? I mean, looking down... Dowgate Hill now of course there are the the the, the, the famous and, and absolutely beautiful guild halls on the right hand side there the tallow chandlers tallow with a wick through it is a second class candle it was the candle that everybody used it was the utility way of lighting mm -hmm. And there were enough of them being used in the medieval city to warrant a guild. It's quite a skill to make them stand upright. Huh. 
next to that are both the Skinners and Dyers Halls, both of which are absolutely beautiful. Mm. Skinners are the leather makers. The Dyers, there was a huge medieval cloth trade. On the opposite side of the road, if you're looking at the main Cannon Street building, can you see how the line of that building passes into the Victorian brick that leads it to its gateway across the river? Okay, and now we'll walk left then, along Cloak Lane. When you reach Garlic Hill, bear straight along Great Trinity Lane and then turn left into Queen Victoria Street. Keep walking along Queen Victoria Street until you see a set of steps on your right-hand side. This is St Peter's Hill. Cross over, but don't go up the steps just yet. Walk a little way further along Queen Victoria Street and you'll see very soon a set of black gilded gates. Go inside, this is the College of Arms. Now, Doctors' Commons, being familiar by name to everybody as the place where they grant marriage licenses to lovesick couples and divorces to unfaithful ones, register the wills of people who have any property to leave and punish hasty gentlemen who call ladies by unpleasant names, we no sooner discovered that we were really within its precincts than we felt a laudable desire to become better acquainted therewith. And as the first object of our curiosity was the court, whose decrees can even unloose the bonds of matrimony, we procured a direction to it and bent our steps thither without delay. Crossing a quiet and shady courtyard paved with stone and frowned upon by old red brick houses, on the doors of which were painted the names of sundry learned civilians, we paused before a small, green-based, brass-headed nailed door, which, yielding to our gentle push, at once admitted us into an old, quaint-looking apartment, with sunken windows and black, carved wainscoting, at the upper end of which, seated on a raised platform of semicircular shape, were about a dozen solemn-looking gentlemen in crimson gowns and wigs. At a more elevated desk in the centre sat a very fat and red-faced gentleman in tortoiseshell spectacles, whose dignified appearance announced the judge, and round a long green baize table below, something like a billiard table without the cushions and pockets, were a number of very self-important-looking personages in stiff neckcloths and black gowns with white fur collars, whom we at once set down as proctors. At the lower end of the billiard table was an individual in an armchair and a wig, whom we afterwards discovered to be the registrar, and seated behind a little desk near the door were a respectable-looking man in black of about twenty stone weight or thereabouts, and a fat-faced, smirking, civil-looking body in a black gown, black kid gloves, knee shorts and silks, with a shirt frill in his bosom, curls on his head and a silver staff in his hand, whom we had no difficulty in recognising as the officer of the court. The registrar called on the next cause, which was the office of the judge promoted by Bumple against Sludbury. A general movement was visible in the court at this announcement, and the obliging functionary with silver staff whispered us that there would be some fun now, for this was a brawling case. 
we were not rendered much the wiser by this piece of information, till we found by the opening speech of the Council for the Promoter that, under a half-obsolete statute of one of the Edwards, the court was empowered to visit with the penalty of excommunication any person who should be proved guilty of the crime of brawling or smiting in any church or vestry adjoining thereto, and it appeared by some eight and twenty affidavits which were duly referred to that on a certain night at a certain vestry meeting in a certain parish particularly set forth Thomas Sludberry the party appeared against in that suit had made use of and applied to Michael Bumple the promoter the words you be blowed and that on the said Michael Bumple and others remonstrating with the said Thomas Sludberry on the impropriety of his conduct, the said Thomas Sludbury repeated the aforesaid expression, You be blowed! And furthermore, desired and requested to know whether the said Michael Bumple wanted anything for himself, adding, that if the said Michael Bumple did want anything for himself, he, the said Thomas Sludbury, was the man to give it him. At the same time, making use of other heinous and sinful expressions, all of which, Bumple submitted, came within the intent and meaning of the act, and therefore he, for the soul's health and chastening of Sludbury, prayed for sentence of excommunication against him accordingly. Upon these facts, a long argument was entered into, on both sides, to the great edification of a number of persons interested in the parochial squabbles, who crowded the court, and when some very long and grave speeches had been made pro and con, the red-faced gentleman in the tortoise-shell spectacles took a review of the case, which occupied half an hour more, and then pronounced upon Sludbury the awful sentence of excommunication for a fortnight and payment of the costs of the suit. Upon this, Sludbury, who was a little red-faced, sly-looking, ginger-beer seller, addressed the court and said, if they'd be good enough to take off the costs and excommunicate him for the term of his natural life instead, it would be much more convenient for him, for he never went to church at all. In the prerogative office, a hard-featured old man with a deeply wrinkled face was intently perusing a lengthy will with the aid of a pair of horn spectacles, occasionally pausing from his task and slyly noting down some brief memorandum of the bequests contained within it. Every wrinkle about his toothless mouth and sharp, keen eyes told of avarice and cunning. His clothes were nearly threadbare, but it was easy to see that he wore them from choice and not from necessity. All his looks and gestures, down to the very small pinches of snuff, which he every now and then took from a little tin canister, told of wealth and penury and avarice. As he leisurely closed the register, put up his spectacles, and folded his scraps of paper in a large leathern pocketbook, we thought what a nice hard bargain he was driving with some poverty-stricken legatee, who, tired of waiting year after year until some life interest should fall in, was selling his chance, just as it began to grow more valuable, for a twelfth part of its worth. It was a good speculation, a very safe one. The old man stowed his pocketbook carefully in the breast of his greatcoat and hobbled away with a leer of triumph. That will had made him ten years younger at the lowest computation.
So hopefully by now you're standing outside the College of Arms. And in that extract from Dickens's Sketches by Bowes, we just heard mentioned a place called the Doctor's Commons. Veronica, where was Doctor's Commons and what happened there? Doctor's Commons was right next door to the College of Arms. And if you think the College of Arms is an eccentric building doing an eccentric job, monitoring the heraldry of this country, Doctor's Commons was an even more eccentric survival of another world. Doctor's Commons administered a law that was quite different from the rest of the laws of this country. It dealt with wives, wills and wrecks. Its jurisdiction was over probate, divorce, yes there was some, not much, but there was some, and admiralty questions. So the people who resorted to it were in themselves slightly at a tangent from the main in this country. And it also dealt with such matters as bad behaviour in church. <laughs> and what about the College of Heralds then? There's a great building that went up after the, after the Great Fire of 1666. Well, this had jurisdiction over who was entitled to bear arms and hmm. what arms they were entitled to bear. So that all of those who are old and landed in Dickens's novels, one thinks of the deadlocks, yes. occasionally had some kind of converse with here, a minor moving of a martlet in a quarter. <sighs> and many of his appalling rises in society, the Bounderbys and co, longed to pass through here and acquire themselves a coat of arms. Fantastic. Okay, well, let's walk on now then. So retrace our steps just a tiny way and go up the steps behind the college. Turn first left into Knight Rider Street and along it to the end, crossing over Adel Hill to the back of St Andrew by the wardrobe and into Wardrobe Terrace and pause there. One of my best beloved churchyards I call the churchyard of St. Ghastly Grim. Touching what men in general call it, I have no information. It lies at the heart of the city, and the Blackwall Railway shrieks at it daily. It is a small, small churchyard, with a ferocious, strong, spiked iron gate, like a jail. This gate is ornamented with skulls and crossbones, larger than the life, wrought in stone, but it likewise came into the mind of St. Ghastly Grim that to stick iron spikes atop of the stone skulls as though they were impaled would be a pleasant device. Therefore, the skulls grin aloft horribly, thrust through and through with iron spears. Hence, there is attraction of repulsion for me in St. Ghastly Grim. And having often contemplated it in the daylight and the dark, I once felt drawn towards it in a thunderstorm at midnight. Why not? I said, in self-excuse. I've been to see the Colosseum by the light of the moon. Is it worse to see St. Ghastly Grim by the light of the lightning? I repaired to the saint in a hackney cab, and found the skulls most effective, having the air of a public execution, and seeming, as the lightning flashed, to wink and grin with the pain of the spikes. Having no other person to whom to impart my satisfaction, I communicated it to the driver. So far from being responsive, he surveyed me, 
He was naturally a bottle-nosed, red-faced man with a blanched countenance. And as he drove me back, he ever and again glanced in over his shoulder through the little front window of his carriage, as mistrusting that I was a fair originally from a grave in the churchyard of St. Ghastly Grim, who might have flitted home again without paying. You do not come upon these churchyards violently. There are shapes of transition in the neighbourhood. An antiquated news shop, or barber shop, apparently bereft of customers in the earlier days of George III, would warn me to look out for one, if any discoveries in this respect were left for me to make. A very quiet court, in combination with an unaccountable dyers and scourers, would prepare me for a churchyard. An exceedingly retiring public house, with a bagatelle board shadily visible in a sawdusty parlour, shaped like an omnibus, and with a shelf of punch bowls in the bar, would apprise me that I stood near consecrated ground. A dairy, exhibiting in its modest window one very little milk can and three eggs, would suggest to me the certainty of finding the poultry hard by, pecking at my forefathers. I first inferred the vicinity of St. Ghastly Grim from a certain air of extra repose and gloom pervading a vast stack of warehouses. So we should now then be in Wardrobe Terrace. You'll see the blackened bricks of a church immediately in front of you. Turn right in front of that church into um, the little alleyway uh, beside the church to St Andrew's Hill. So when you reach the end of the little alley, you come onto the street, look right, and you'll see a pub called The Cockpit. Turn in by there, Ireland Yard it's called, but just for a very short distance, you're gonna turn immediately right now up Bergen Street. Cross over Carter Lane and then take the first alley on the left, Ludgate Square. Head up to Ludgate Hill and turn left down the hill in the direction of Ludgate Circus. Before you get there, on the right is a street called Old Bailey. Pause there. Having delivered our credentials to the servant who answered our knock at the door of the governor's house, we were ushered into the office, a little room on the right-hand side as you enter, with two windows looking into the Old Bailey, fitted up like an ordinary attorney's office or merchant's counting house with the usual fixtures, a wainscoted partition, a shelf or two, a desk, a couple of stools, a pair of clocks, an almanac, a clock and a few maps. After a little delay, occasioned by sending into the interior of the prison for the officer whose duty it was to conduct us, that functionary arrived. A respectable-looking man of about two or three and fifty, in a broad-brimmed hat and full suit of black, Following our conductor by a door opposite to that at which we'd entered, we arrived at a small room, without any other furniture than a little desk, with a book for visitors' autographs and a shelf on which were a few boxes for papers and casts of the heads and faces of the two notorious murderers, Bishop and Williams. The former, in particular, exhibiting a style of head and set of features which might have afforded sufficient moral grounds for his instant execution at any time, even had there been no other evidence against him. Leaving this room also, by an opposite door, we found ourselves in the lodge which opens on the old bailey, 
one side of which is plentifully garnished with a choice collection of heavy sets of irons, including those worn by the redoubtable Jack Shepherd, genuine, and those said to have been graced by the sturdy limbs of the no less celebrated Dick Turpin. Doubtful. From this lodge, a heavy oaken gate, bound with iron, studded with nails of the same material, and guarded by another turnkey, opens on a few steps, if we remember right, which terminate in a narrow and dismal stone passage, running parallel with the Old Bailey, and leading to the different yards, through a number of tortuous and intricate windings, guarded in their turn by huge gates and gratings, whose appearance is sufficient to dispel at once the slightest hope of escape that any newcomer may have entertained, and the very recollection of which, on eventually traversing the place again, involves one in a maze of confusion. In the press room below were three men, the nature of whose offence rendered it necessary to separate them, even from their companions in guilt. It is a long, sombre room with two windows sunk into the stone wall, and here the wretched men are pinioned on the morning of their execution, before moving towards the scaffold. The fate of one of these prisoners was uncertain, some mitigatory circumstances having come to light since his trial, which had been humanely represented in the proper quarter. The other two had nothing to expect from the mercy of the Crown. Their doom was sealed. No plea could be urged in extenuation of their crime, and they well knew that for them there was no hope in this world. The two short ones, the turnkey whispered, were dead men. So I hope we didn't lose you then on that wander through some fantastic little alleyways, um, real relics of, uh, of London's past. With any luck now, you're on Ludgate Hill, looking across at the Old Bailey, containing the Central Criminal Court of the same name. Veronica, I mean, Dickens did a lot of reporting on criminal cases, didn't he? Dickens was more than an amateur criminologist. He was fascinated by crime and he was fascinated by punishment. And what is now the Old Bailey itself, with the statue of blind justice on top, was actually built on top of Newgate Jail. Newgate Jail is a very ancient institution, but it had come to extraordinary prominence in the 18th century when it handled most of the illegality of London particularly notorious because it was both a place where execution was a common sentence and a place where execution was carried out right up to Dickens's time in public. He went to some, didn't he? Yes, he did. He attended a public hanging on the other side of the river and he also examined the state of the jail and the people in it. There was a huge, excited interest in the reform and change of the criminal law and of its punishments in his time. And the whole idea of capital offences, offences for which you could be hung, were very slowly changing through the 20s, 30s, 40s. But that just made people more and more excited to remember the days when public hanging was the punishment for relatively trivial crimes. This was, I suppose, where, where the sort of Dickens the social reformer and, and Dickens the writer with the fascination for sort of the great criminal yarn and, and what have you came together because, uh, I mean, unlike the sort of melodramas of the time, Dickens 
understood what were the true origins of, of a great deal of crime, didn't he? Although he did believe in the incorrigible criminal, he also knew that 90% of crime was the simple result of want and ignorance. The two great besetting sins that Scrooge has shown. Right, well, now we're getting very near the end of our tour. And the last stop, then, is going to be a very easy one to find. Walk up the hill to St Paul's Cathedral and pause on the steps outside. We lingered so long over the leaves from which I had read that as I consigned them to their former resting place, the hand of my trusty clock pointed to twelve, and there came towards us upon the wind the voice of the deep and distant bell of St Paul's, as it struck the hour of midnight. I had seen it but a few days before and could not help telling them of the fancy I had about it. I had paid my fee and groped my way into the turret which it occupies and saw before me, in a kind of loft, what seemed to be a great old oaken press with folding doors. These being thrown back by the attendant, who was sleeping when I came upon him and looked a drowsy fellow, as though his close companionship with time had made him quite indifferent to it, disclosed a complicated crowd of wheels and chains in iron and brass, great sturdy rattling engines, suggestive of breaking a finger put in here or there and grinding the bone to powder. And these were the clock. Its very pulse, if I may use the word, was like no other clock. It did not mark the flight of every moment, with a gentle second stroke, as though it would check old time and have him stay his pace in pity, but measured it with one sledgehammer beat, as if its business were to crush the seconds as they came trooping on, and remorselessly to clear a path before the day of judgment. I sat down opposite to it, and hearing its regular and never-changing voice, that one deep, constant note, uppermost amongst all the noise and clatter in the streets below, Marking that, let that tumult rise or fall, go on or stop, let it be night or noon, tomorrow or today, this year or next, it still performed its functions with the same dull constancy, and regulated the progress of the life around. The fancy came upon me that this was London's heart, and that when it should cease to beat, the city would be no more. It is night. Calm and unmoved amidst the scenes that darkness favours, the great heart of London throbs in its giant breast. Wealth and beggary, vice and virtue, guilt and innocence, repletion and the direst hunger, all treading on each other and crowding together, are gathered round it. Draw but a little circle above the clustering housetops, and you shall have within its space everything with its opposite extreme and contradiction close beside. Where yonder feeble light is shining, a man is but this moment dead. The taper, at a few yards' distance, is seen by eyes that have this instant opened on the world. Does not this heart of London, that nothing moves, nor stops, nor quickens, that goes on the same let what will be done, does it not express the city's character well? So here we are on the steps of St Paul's. I mean, you don't get much more iconic landmark than this looking down Ludgate Hill. It's a classic London scene. 
Veronica, in Dickens's time, this area was actually the great book production house of London, wasn't it? Just around the corner from here is Stationers Hall, which was the headquarters of the book production and book selling trade and had been for several centuries before then. So this is a curious conjunction point. Money, as it were, big, massive wealth goes eastwards from here toppling down that hill, the world of media and a newer London starts. It's a conjoining point. As a matter of fact, I'm looking right now over the small and very determined tents of Occupy London. And I suppose nobody more than Dickens encapsulated those inequities in a way. And, and he lived through them. And of course, they were the subject of his, of his work. That's it for this podcast walk. Thank you very much to Veronica Horwell. The Charles Dickens extracts you've been hearing were read by Michael Tate. The producer was Ian Chambers. I'm John Henley, and thank you very much for listening. Heart of London, there is a moral in thy every stroke. As I look on at thy indomitable working, which neither death, nor press of life, nor grief, nor gladness out of doors will influence one jot. I seem to hear a voice within thee, which sinks into my heart, bidding me, as I elbow my way among the crowd, have some thought for the meanest wretch that passes. And, being a man, to turn away with scorn and pride from none that bear the human shape. downloads go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.